Welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, where we hope to bring you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson, and I'm here once again with my co-host Carly Harrod. Hi Carly. Hi Andy. Today we're at Hill Head, which is an area of coast near to one of our national nature reserves, Titchfield Haven. And we've come here today because we are talking all things marine this month. Now, we're actually recording this in June, and it's not going out till September, because we wanted to get the lovely weather in, and it's been really hot recently, and today it's raining. The last time we were recording at Martin Down, we had skylarks in the background, but I think it'll just be rain at the moment. You might hear some birds calling, but uh, it's a beautiful place to be nevertheless. So we've got fantastic views out across the Solent, which is the bit of water when you hit here in the Isle of Wight. Um, and it's probably well known for its shipping and sailing and cruise ships and all that sort of thing. But below ways it's teeming with wildlife. We even get seahorses and seagrass beds. We've come here today not just to have a nice day out, but to meet with Rachel Bryan, Joint Project Manager for the Wildlife Trust's Secrets of the Solent Project, and one of her marine champions, Ben. And they're here to tell us more about this fantastic habitat and how you can help it. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Andy. So you work with the Wildlife Trust now, how long have you been with the Wildlife Trust? Um, I've joined Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust about two and a half years ago, um, specifically to work on their Secrets of the Salient project, which is funded by National Lottery Heritage Fund, and the project's running for four years until December 2022. I mean, clearly when people come down here, you can see birds on the beach and uh, clearly stuff washed up, and hopefully they'll wander around the beach in a minute to have see what we can find. But the secrets, I think, presume it's all underneath the water is mainly what you're looking at, is it? Yeah, that's the, the main focus of our project. Um, so as you say, people can see and are aware of what's on the surface of the Solent. Um, but when they look out, especially on a day like today when it's raining, it just looks grey and dull and murky. But if you actually look underneath the water, or look into the Solent, you can see it's teeming with life. Um, and as you already mentioned, we've got seahorses, we've got seagrass beds, we've got amazing cuttlefish, um, and we're visited during the summer months by species such as thresher sharks. So thresher sharks, I mean, what's special about thresher sharks? Well, thresher sharks, they are, um, normally live in the deep ocean. And then we're lucky that they come and visit our Solent Coast and the south of England during the summer months. Um, so they are, a shark species and they're really unique in that their tail fin is almost the same length as their body so they're very distinctive in the way they look and they use their tail they whip it through the water um, to stun their prey species as and then they are able to to eat the, the small fish and other prey that they would eat so i mean you talk about the prey species for the thrush shark i mean is that things like small fish like the, the mackerel shoals that come here through the summer Yes, it is. So there's a lot, I mean, there's all these animals that live in the water, but there's a lot of pressure on them, isn't there? Because you've got pollution from the industry as well as all this boat traffic and stuff like that. Are you looking at those sort of, sort of things as well? Yeah, we, we want to look at a real broad picture for the Solent. Um, and we've done research and looked at the different threats and pressures. Um, so one of the biggest pressures or, or threats, should I say, is lack of knowledge and understanding. Because um, if people don't know what's there and they don't care about it, they're not inclined to support it. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we're raising all this awareness. But yeah, other, other threats and pressures do include all the industry and all the, the boating that's on the Solent. Um, so it's a very busy shipping area for commercial shipping. We've got Royal Navy here. Um, but there's a lot of leisure shipping and leisure boating as well. 
Um, and that can have damaging impacts from things like anchoring in sensitive habitats such as seagrass beds um, through to discharging their grey water tanks from the boats. So we're looking to engage with all the different people who enjoy using the Solent and help them to do that in a more informed and more responsible manner. I suppose as you say it's a, it is that hidden stuff out there isn't it because I mean if I turned up in a candle van and parked up here you can see all the grass churned up where I've camped and you can see where I've chucked the rubbish out. Not that I do that, of course. <laughs> but you can see if I've chucked the rubbish out or I've put my grey water or my wastewater out on the side of the verge. But it all disappears, doesn't it, the moment you get out into, on a boat and doing that. Yes, yeah, and you don't always appreciate your impact um, that you're having, but we want to talk about the positive behaviours that people can do to help support the Solent. So if you're out on your, your boat, you know, on a lovely sunny afternoon, you could pick up some litter if you see it floating on the surface of the water. Um, or you could anchor in areas that are going to be less damaged. Um, or just, you know, take everything home that you take out with you. So we really want to focus on those positive actions that people can take. So in previous podcasts, we talked about sites of importance for nature conservation and triple SI, sites of special scientific interest. But are things different when you get out beyond below the tideline? We still have protected areas in the marine environment um, and over the last you know, few years there's been quite a lot of interest in increasing and improving those protections for the marine environment. Um, so the main one that you might have heard about is marine conservation zones. So within the Solent area we have one um, that's around Benbridge on the Isle of Wight um, and that's special and has been nominated because of it's a habitat for native oysters, short-snouted seahorse, um, and it's got habitats such as seagrass. So that one's really special and really important. And then in 2019, the government announced a third tranche of marine conservation zones. So we were lucky to get another one in the Solent area. Um, this one covers Yarmouth to cows. And again, it's important because it's home to lots of our native oysters. And it's also got habitats such as rocky habitats and intertidal sediments, which are quite special and unique, and that's why they get included in marine conservation zones. In some areas, these marine conservation zones have an impact on the fishing that can happen in there, so whether they can use dredges or... Is there any limits in, in this area you know of as to how it impacts the fishermen? There are... In some marine conservation zones, they would be known as no-take zones, where there is no fishing allowed at all. Um, our ones, I don't think, have no-take zones. Um, so there is controlled fishing within the zones and across the whole Solent. Um, so there are other bylaws which limit and restrict fishing around the whole Solent. So there are areas that are covered um, in terms of bivalves, such as clams and oysters. Um, so they're only allowed to be fished during certain seasons and by certain amounts. Um, but across, across marine conservation zones, kind of nationally, there has been found that species can breed more and increase their numbers during these, in the, within these zones. And then you get a spill-out effect into the wider marine areas. So there is evidence that shows fishing and fish stocks have increased in areas where there's marine conservation zones. So it's a real positive thing, not just for the biodiversity and the natural environment, but also the fishing industry as well. So what do you actually do as part of this project yourself? 
Um, so as I mentioned, I'm a joint project manager. So I job share the role with my colleague, Dr. Tim Ferrero. Um, and we, we kind of run and guide the project. So there's lots of the, the kind of the paperwork that goes alongside the project. So doing our quarterly reports back to the funders, doing the accounts and the budget, but we also get to do all the fun stuff. Um, and that involves supporting the rest of the project team. So our project officers and our communications officer, as well as our marine champions, who are our band of volunteers. We've currently got around 165 marine champions who are doing lots of great activities around Solent. Um, so that could be anything from litter picking on beaches through to creating an online photography book and also going to public events for us to talk to members of the public and communities about the species around the Solent. Other projects that I am helping to lead as part of Secrets of the Solent include our great Solent seafood campaign. So we're working with the local fishing industry and the local hospitality industry to raise awareness of seafood that is caught in the Solent, um, particularly those species that are sustainable, um, caught using methods that are least damaging, such as potting. Um, so we've got crabs that can be caught through potting. Um, so that's really sustainable. And then they make fantastic fish cakes or dress crabs that you can enjoy when you're visiting the Solent. I presume you like seafood. I do like seafood, yeah, yes. That's a bonus then, isn't it? I presume you get taste loads of this, do you? Uh, I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the perks of the job. We've also had some very exciting other activities that we've been doing. So we are creating six giant wall murals at key locations around Solent. So we're working with a fabulous artist called ATM Street Art, and he's painting different Solent marine species on different walls. So more details of that can be found on our website um, and you can go around and find all of these walls with our species on. Um, but to let you know, we've got a cuttlefish already and a spider crab, and they're soon to be joined by other animals as well. Yeah, I think I've seen the cuttlefish. It's down in Portsmouth, South Seaway. Yes, it is. It's massive. It's a huge wall it's on and it's beautiful painting. Yes, it's, it's very realistic, but it's also using lots of bright colours as well to make it really stand out. Um, and that one's been there for quite a few years now, and it's become a real sort of landmark within the city. So everyone knows where it is if you mention the cuttlefish. Because cuttlefish are quite weird, aren't they? I mean, they're, very, they're, they're part of that whole family with squid and octopus. And they're, they're really quite bright cuttlefish and octopuses, aren't they? Yeah, they are, and they're really cool in the fact that cuttlefish can change the colour of their skin um, to blend in with the habitat that they're in as well. Um, so they use it as a way of protecting themselves against, pre against predators, and also the males will change colour of their skin to attract females as well. Um, so that's one cool thing. They also have three hearts, and their blood is green. Um, rather than like our blood which is red, their blood is bright green. So they are really cool animals that we have locally in the Solent. I think that's partly because I think, because they are mollusks, they are the family that snails and, and clams that you're talking about, that sort of thing, the same family. And I think their blood is not, not based on haemoglobin, which is iron based in our blood, which is why our blood's red. 
I think it's based on copper, which yes. is why it's, that's got that green colour, not red. Yeah, I think it's cyanoglobin. So the cyano means the kind of greeny, coppery sort of colour. So also as part of our project, we've been working with some of the local harbours and marinas and we've installed some innovative um, mechanical devices called sea bins. Um, so if you peer over the edge of the harbour wall in the locations where they are, um, you will see this sort of donut shape of yellow, bright yellow, floating in the surface of the water. But underneath the surface is a mechanical device that has a pump and the idea is it sucks water in the top of the device and it sucks in all those bits of plastic and rubbish and microplastics that are in the water and it collects it within the, the sea bin and then people can go along and empty the bucket and remove that detritus from the water. So it's a really good way of helping to clean out the waste, the plastic litter, microplastics and other litter from the water. Um, so they're quite innovative and we've helped install ones at Ocean Village Marina in Southampton, East Cowes Marina on the Isle of Wight and Lymington Marina down in the New Forest. Because as with so many places, litter in the sea is a huge problem and it's where a lot of it ends up. Quite often it's put direct into the sea by some people but it washes down the rivers and blows off the land, blows off the beaches and it all ends up in the sea and again it can be quite hidden, you wouldn't know it's there. Yes, that's true. Um, and there's lots of microplastics. They're all the really tiny bits that you wouldn't necessarily see floating around or, you know, obviously washed up on the beach, but they account for quite a huge proportion of the actual plastic in the marine environment. And they're the ones that can get ingested by um, the plankton and the fish species and they do end up accumulating throughout the food chain and um, so they are a real problem and it's really hard to to take them out of the water um, so a sea bin is one way of doing that and also getting involved in beach cleans um, people can go along to organize beach cleans and help collect any marine plastic or any other litter they found washed up on the shore because there is a, there's these little plastic granules they use in producing plastic um, items in, in industry. I mean, there's a special name for those little granules, isn't there? They're called nurdles. That's it. Couldn't remember it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they've ended up in the sea, and, and people do search on beaches for nurdles, don't they? For all these little tiny... They're about the size of a... Uh, half the size of a pea, even smaller than that sometimes, aren't they? Yeah, I'd say around about five millimetres diameter. Um, and they can be in all different colours and they do really get embedded in the beaches and the sediment. So they won't necessarily just be on the surface, but if you kind of scrape away some of the top stones, you might see them there. And they sort of accumulate in the corners of beaches where, where the natural prevailing wind has sort of blown them up or the tide has washed them up into corners. Um, so they are, they are a real problem. And I've tried picking some up myself. They, they are fiddly little things to collect and pick up out of the stones or the sand. So I mean it's clearly what they call a citizen science project where you use a lot of volunteers and I think Carly now is going to talk to one of your volunteers, Ben, isn't she? Yes, um, Ben has been one of our volunteers from the beginning of the project um, and he's been fantastic in how he's got involved so hopefully he can inspire some other people to come and join us and help become more marine champions. Fantastic. Hi Ben. Hello. 
Now, you're a marine champion, aren't you? What does that mean? I join the Trust on lots of different events mm-hmm. um, to try and uh, talk to the public and get them enthusiastic about our uh, local marine wildlife. Mm-hmm. If you talk to a lot of different people um, around the local area, then the thing that you'll find is that a lot of people don't really know that much about our marine species. Mm-hmm. And so, um, even though there's lots of fantastic species out here in the Solent, people don't know about them. So we try to raise awareness for mm-hmm. all those species that are so frequently overlooked. And the Solent is really overlooked because it's a beautiful stretch of water, but people only really look at the top. They don't look underneath, do they? We have lots of special different habitats within the Solent, and one of these is seagrass beds. Yes. Can you tell me a bit more about seagrass beds? So seagrass is a very good nursery habitat for Mm -hmm. many different species. Um, In the Solent we have uh, four species of wrasse, Um, as well as uh, lots of different crustacean species and cuttlefish and other cephalopods. Um, And so the seagrass is a fantastic habitat because the fronds of the seagrass provide cover for those species when they're in their early stages of Mm -hmm. development. So it's protection from predators, essentially. And what's more is... Uh, seagrass is a fantastic carbon sink where we have you know lots of elevated levels of carbon dioxide in our uh, atmosphere at the moment seagrass is a brilliant habitat to um, absorb a lot of that carbon dioxide and help to balance out our atmosphere but the problem of course is that lots of our seagrass is under threat not just here in the UK but globally Mm -hmm. and we've lost so many of our seagrass meadows um, that of course that that effect is um, going to be greatly reduced so it's really important that we try and help our seagrass meadows there's lots of different projects that people can get involved with around the country for that. Now you're a volunteer, marine champion. Yes. Why do you volunteer? To begin with um, I started volunteering for the project back in uh, January 2019, not long after the project started. Mm -hmm. And to begin with I was fresh out of university and uh, as is the case with most university uh, students, I was looking for something good to put on my CV. Uh, um, Rachel and and the other staff members are well aware of this, so I don't (laughs) mind saying it, but um, the thing that I found immediately after joining the project is that whilst being able to, you know, put this work on on my CV was was good, um, I quickly discovered a a very strong sense of community within mm-hmm. the project um, because everybody who joins it um, is looking to try and help out our environment and everybody is passionate um, either about um, our marine habitats and species already uh, or like me they quickly find a passion for them in learning about um, all of our wildlife that we have here. 
Uh, and so yes, that very strong sense of community, everybody's um, enthusiastic about trying to make a difference for our wildlife. And everybody wants to work together and, and help each other out. Um, and so yeah, we are in, in many ways a, an extended family. And so going to events with people who you you know, have seen many times before. Mm -hmm. You know, it's good to see all those um, old faces who you've known for a while, but also to see newer people coming into the project yeah. as well. And it gives you a chance to sort of spread that knowledge and, and pass on all of that, you know, wonderful, <laughs> you know, all those wonderful facts and figures yeah. um, and enthusiasm as well. Now, I've been a ranger for a very long time, about 20 <laughs> years. And I've still learned something new today. Now, you were telling me earlier about Slip Olympics. I was, yes. Yeah, so um, Slip Olympics are currently the um, most common shell that you will find on UK beaches. And, that's and that was certainly here when as soon as we got onto the beach yes. today, it's just covered in yeah. Slip Olympics shells. You, you, you step, um, you know, one, one foot onto the beach and there will be Slip Olympics right mm -hmm. there. They're everywhere. Um, and they're actually invasive. So our native, um, uh, our native limpet is um, that sort of very flattened ice cream cone shape, mm -hmm. sort of a, a conical yeah. shape with um, lots of rivets down the sides. Um, but the stiffer limpets are a lot rounder. They're almost sort of um, jelly bean shaped yes. in a way. Um, and the reason that our native uh, limpets are having such a difficult time at the moment, they're, they're um, declining quite heavily, is because of these slipper limpets which have come in from um, other parts uh, of the world, um, from the um, uh, shipping containers, I think, mm -hmm. is uh, the theory. Um, and so they've um, come over to the UK and have started to outcompete our native um, uh, native limpets for space, um, and so our native limpets are suffering simply because they don't have anywhere to live anymore. And that is a shame. But slipper limpets have a really cool life cycle. They don't do, they? yes. So um, if you uh, go down to the beach and you find um, some slipper limpets, you'll find that they very easily uh, sort of fit on top of one another. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can stack them up if you get a larger one and put uh, some more on top of it in decreasing size. They, they stack up on top of each other uh, You can make a nice smoothly. tower. Yes, exactly. And that is to do with how they actually breed. Mm -hmm. um, so when they are um, breeding, uh, you will have uh, one large limpet that will attach itself to um, a rock and then some younger ones in decreasing size and age will attach themselves on top of that uh, eldest one mm -hmm. in, in a stack. Um, all of them um, will be male except for the one on the bottom who will be female. Mm -hmm. Um, and being the largest and the oldest, um, she will die first. And mm -hmm. so all of the males in the stack 
will breed with her whilst she's alive, but when she dies, she will detach from the rock, and then the next oldest uh, in that stack, um, who is currently male, will actually turn female. Mm -hmm. So they're um, hermaphroditic. And so now that new female will attach to a rock, the, <laughs> the other males will then reattach to her yeah. and begin the process anew. And all so they again. will all start mating with that new female. And that is one of the reasons why they're so prolific now, isn't it? Because they've got a very good breeding strategy. Yes. They don't yes. need to go out and look for a girlfriend. <laughs> She's already there. Very rapidly. And so that's why they are outcompeting our uh, native limpets, uh, simply because they live uh, so close together and they've got that breeding strategy that our um, natives don't. Mm -hmm. So we've been wandering around the beach while Andy's been talking to Rachel. Yes. And we found lots of shells, but you've told me you're into more of the bigger things. So what sort of things do you like? <laughs> um, well, my favourite uh, Solent species actually is uh, the common cuttlefish. Okay. And now a lot of people will not know what a cuttlefish looks like. All they'll yes. see is the the cuttlefish bones that yes. we find on the shore. Yeah. And they're not actually bones either, are they? No, they're not. So um, quite often after a large storm, you will find cuttlefish bones washed up on uh, the shoreline. And um, as, as you said, they're, they're not actually bones. They're made of... Uh, calcium carbonate mm -hmm. and you'll find that if you were to run your fingernail along the underside of the uh, the cuttlefish bone you'll see that it sort of flakes away mm -hmm. quite a bit and that's because um, it's not very dense it's filled with lots of air pockets because that cuttlefish bone is actually um, their flotation device. It's oh, their equivalent of a fish's swim bladder. So they pump it with um, air and oxygen um, to increase their buoyancy in the water column um, and then they can um, take that same air out of it to sink further down. So it's their flotation device. It's mm -hmm. how they control their position. Um, and then a fun little fact about Neolithic people in the UK is that they actually used to use those cuttlefish bones to make jewellery. Mm -hmm. So because it is so soft, you can very easily etch patterns into the calcium. And people back in sort of Neolithic times would etch patterns into the cuttlefish bone and then cast jewellery mm -hmm. in them um, and so lots of, um, sort of you know, Neolithic age sort of jewellery was made using those cuttlefish bones which is a, a nice little connection that people used to have with, uh, with our marine wildlife. Well it shows we've been using the coasts for a very long time yes. doesn't it? Yeah. I've never actually made jewellery with a cuttlefish bone but I did used to feed them to my giant African land snails and they used okay, to love yeah. them for the calcium. Yes. Yeah, I, I hear that um, budgies uh, like them as well. Yeah, budgies <laughs> and birds. Yeah. It's good for their eggs, I think. <laughs> so what do cuttlefish actually look like, though? 
Um, well, they're cephalopods, so they're in the same family as uh, squids mm-hmm. and uh, octopi, and so uh, they have a long body similar to that of um, a squid, um, with a single fin that wraps laterally around their whole body, mm-hmm. and then at the end they have um, eight tentacles. Um, with uh, their two large eyes. And their irises actually um, have a sort of a W-like shape to them. Okay. Um, but unlike um, a squid, their tentacles aren't um, very long and elongated. They've got quite short tentacles. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have uh, a couple of different types of tentacles. Um, so they have their eight um, front uh, tentacles, which are shorter but then i think that um they have two specialized tentacles so 10 in total which lie behind uh, those front ones and in order to catch their prey those two tentacles uh, shoot out at a very rapid speed and uh, catch their prey and then draw them back in um, and they um, hunt uh, using camouflage so one of the most fantastic things about cuttlefish is that they have absolutely amazing ability to camouflage themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you were to go um, on you know, the internet and look up some videos, you can see that their color change is incredibly rapid. Um, and so they can swim along the bottom of uh, the seabed or wherever it may be, and they can change their colour to blend in with the sand, or they can go Mm -hmm. up against some rocks and colour change into that. Um, And they can even cause patterns along their body as well. Um, And so when they are mating, you'll see that they have this zebra-like pattern along their um, bodies. Um, But it's not static. It actually shifts. So all of the stripes (laughs) actually sort of scroll like a conveyor belt <laughs> down the backs of their bodies and so it's quite a quite a spectacular display that's cool. um, uh, and so yeah that's that's what they do that's what the males do when uh, they are trying to attract mates um, but the uh, thing with attracting mates amongst cuttlefish is that the larger males have pick of the females mm-hmm. And so one really quirky thing that the smaller males do is they actually cross-dress. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if there is a large male that they are trying to compete with around, then they will turn their bodies to display female colours on one side of their body to show him, uh-huh. to say, hey, I'm just another female, don't bother, you know, don't bother me. Whilst on the other side of their body, where he can't see, they'll display mating colours and they'll be saying, ah. you know, hey, look at me, I'm, um, I'm an attractive male, you know. And so they will uh, try and deceive uh, their, <laughs> their competitors uh, mm. to try and get access to the females. That is a sneaky um, yeah. <laughs> technique, but obviously works otherwise they wouldn't still be doing it yes yeah yeah so we talk a lot about volunteers on the podcast because we certainly would not be able to get as much work as we get done without our volunteers how can people help with this sort of project the easiest way 
is to go on the um, Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust website and go to the volunteering page. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's nice and easy to sign up there and you can pick uh, which project you join uh, from there. So if you fancied uh, getting involved with uh, the Secret of the Serenant project, then um, that's the way to go and sign up. And once you are a volunteer, you can choose to do all kinds of activities. And so the ones that I've mainly done and that I've mentioned are going to public events. So things like seafood festivals or fairs or Mm -hmm. um, uh, sort of museum open days and things like that, uh, where we set up our little stall where we have lots of pictures of our marine species and Mm -hmm. some uh, specimens on the table for people to have a look at. And we talk to people for free. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We talk to people uh, who come along to the events and just try and raise their awareness of our local species. Um, Because when it comes to wildlife conservation, we often find that people being aware that the wildlife is there is the easiest way to try and help conserve it because people if they're not aware of something won't make a change to try and help it out Mm -hmm. and so that i think is the first and most important step of changing wildlife conservation for the better getting more people aware and involved Um, and so we have those sort of public events that we go to but we also do uh, what we call ferry safaris Mm -hmm. so uh, I think it is the white link ferries that we go on most of the time. And we set up the same little stall on there. Um, and we go across uh, to the Isle of Wight and back again a few different times. <laughs> and so we have a, a constant flow of um, a captive audience. Yep. Know, they can't run away. <laughs> yeah. Well, they <laughs> so. could, but they might get a bit wet. Yes. Yeah. They, they need to take um, a life jacket with them. Yeah. But um, so we, we have a very short period of time in which to uh, quickly talk to these people um, and give them that sort of rapid fire uh, awareness um, talk, uh, if you will. And so uh, there's the ferry safaris, as we call them. Um, but um, we also do um, intertidal surveys mm-hmm. as well. So there are lots of fantastic beaches around the Solent, both on the mainland and the Isle of Wight. And so uh, every year we run uh, a sequence of these intertidal surveys to go and evaluate what kind of species we can find on those beaches and and Mm -hmm. see what's there, um, see if there's any difference in the populations from the last time we surveyed it and try and figure out exactly what's going on with the wildlife in those locations. and you don't need to be an expert mm-hmm. in it either. So I think, you know, when you talk to people about getting involved with intertidal surveys, they think, oh, well, I'm, I'm not an expert in identifying different species. Yeah. Um, I've not had experience in doing scientific surveys. You don't need any of that. It's nice and easy. We have lots of experienced people to come along mm-hmm. with you to help you out. And you would actually be surprised at just how quickly you can pick up all of the um, skills and the identification knowledge there because everybody's so friendly, so willing to help. 
and it's a nice environment to learn and get involved. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us today, You're Ben, welcome. on this pleasure. wet and windy um, day down, or, down at Hillhead. But hopefully you'll be able to get out on some nice, sunnier intertidal hopefully, surveys yes. soon. Thank you, Rachel and Ben, for coming out to talk to us today. Hope the project goes well. It's great to find out more about this amazing habitat and its secrets. I love taking my little one down to the shore for a seashore safari to see what we can find. And she loves finding mermaids' purses. Yes, and you don't need a child to have an excuse to come and do it. I love it myself. And they're good. And you do know they're not mermaids' purses, though, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. I don't believe in mermaids, really. Oh, uh, well, I do, <laughs> sort of. Mermaids' purses are actually shark egg cases. Some sharks and skates reproduce by laying eggs which are surrounded by a tough leathery capsule that protects the embryo as it develops. Once empty, the egg cases, or mermaid's purses, often wash up on the beach and one of the best places to find them is among the strand line. The egg cases of different species can vary so by looking at the size, shape and features we can tell what species laid it. Yes, it's always great being down by the sea in all these different moods and we've got certainly one of his moods today, haven't we? We definitely have, he's not happy today. Plus, of course, you can find some really interesting wildlife as well as strange objects when you beach comb. Do you know I once found the body of a leatherback turtle? Do we get leatherback turtles in the UK? I think occasionally they find live ones up in Cardigan Bay or between Ireland and Wales. Mm -hmm. and they very occasionally find them there. But this, I didn't touch it because it was long dead. I think it washed up with gales right out from the middle of the Atlantic. Ooh, did it smell? It did smell a bit, yeah, I didn't get that close. But I thought initially it was a, a boat had washed up because they're about, they're big old beasts, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're about seven foot long. Yeah. And about 110 stone. So that's pretty big. Do you yeah. know, I know really interesting facts about leatherback turtles, Andy. Hit me. So their favourite food is jellyfish and they're actually cold water turtles so they can survive in a lot colder temperatures than other turtles and that's why we find them do find them sometimes around our shores but they have a really cool way of eating so in their throat they have downward facing spikes so that when they get hold of a jellyfish it can't escape back out of their throat so it gets stuck on these spikes but that does cause the turtles a bit of an issue because sometimes they mistake carrier bags for jellyfish and obviously they get stuck on the spikes as well and they can cause the turtles some long-term damage and even kill them. Yeah it's amazing how much impact plastics can have on the environment particularly if something like that you know the fact that it, I can imagine a, a, a carrier bag floating in the water looking quite a lot like a jellyfish. Yeah definitely that's why we must all dispose of our waste responsibly. I hope you have all enjoyed this episode of Looking After Nature. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, let us know by checking out Hampshire's Countryside social media pages. And we'd really appreciate it if you rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time. <laughs>